As we're diving in this morning, though, we're continuing our study where we're asking, where are we going? We started that last Sunday uh, as we were looking at Ephesians chapter 4 and the goal that God's given us, that we would be this equipped body of believers who loves Jesus and, leads, and lives like him and leads others to do the same, right? So what we've been looking at is we're going to look at, over the next lot of weeks, we're going to be looking at six different purposes that God has given the church We're going to take two weeks at a time. One, we're going to look at the theological background for why we believe that's a part of the purposes of the church. And then the second week, we're going to look at some really practical ways to actually go about doing that thing, okay? So you'll get a little bit better picture as we go through this morning. But uh, we're starting this morning with the first purpose. And Alex, I slipped the slide in there for you that's not in my notes. Uh, Go ahead and go to that next one about the six purposes. Last week, we articulated for you basically six different purposes for the church, exalting God in worship, evangelizing the word, or the world, equipping the saints through discipleship, edifying others through ministry and service, encountering God through prayer, and encouraging one another through fellowship. Now, those are really churchy words. So if you're not familiar with church, if you haven't been around a whole lot, then I would encourage you, it's going to be okay. We're going to define all of those things. If I had put this list together on my own originally, I probably would not have used some of these terms because they are so churchy, but it does make it where there's a nice group of ease to be able to go through, right? So this week, we're looking at the first one, which is exalting God in worship. Now, as we do that, I would encourage you, go ahead and open your Bibles up to Isaiah chapter 6. This is the passage we're going to be in this morning, and we're going to take some time to look at an experience that Isaiah had where he got to see God in a unique way and what that teaches us about worship. Now, for full disclosure, the term worship is never used in this passage. It's one that we use often in church, but when I say worship, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Singing. Almost everybody in American church, when we mention the term worship, we talk about what we have just been doing for the last little bit, right? That when we get together as a church and we sing songs that exalt God, and as we'll see, that is an aspect of what worship is. But this morning, what I want us to do is make kind of a working definition of worship. Um, We could look up all kinds of dictionary definitions of it, and it's not all that helpful anyway, and there's lots of different ideas about what worship is. But what we want to do is walk through this passage and try to draw out from it kind of three aspects that make up what worship is that will give us a better idea of what it looks like for us to grow in worship. What we're going to find is that worship is broader than just singing. Worship happens by ourselves. Worship happens when we get together. As we'll look at next week, we're going to look at how we can worship alone, how we can worship in our work, how we can worship at school, how we can worship at the doctor's office. We're going to try to make this incredibly practical to see how worship goes through. Now, I'm not saying that we're going to live our life like a Disney musical, where we just randomly break out in songs sitting in the waiting room. If that's your thing, go for it. Um, Please make sure if you take a video Hold it horizontally, all right? I want to see it, and I I just, I like, don't do vertical video, right? Make it horizontal. Um, As we're looking at exalting God in worship, though, what I want you to see is that it's bigger than just the singing idea. We're going to see that worship is when we reflect on who God is, and as we reflect on who God is, we reflect on who we are, and then we respond to what God's shown us in repentance and obedience, okay? So that's kind of where we're going with this. I, I want to read this passage for you, but let me set the stage for you. Uh, he's going to mention a king here. He said, this is in the year that King Uzziah died. 
that Isaiah saw this vision or, or had this experience. Well, who was King Uzziah? I know you guys are all just, you have your Old Testament, you know, king lineages just nailed down, so everybody's totally clear. Uh, just in case, like me, you got to look it up every once in a while. Uzziah was one of the good kings that ruled over the southern kingdom. After the kingdom was divided, after King David and Solomon, you had the, the northern kingdom, Israel, and the southern kingdom, Judah. And, and Uzziah was one of the good kings. At least he started off great. He actually started off really well, loved the Lord, was following him. But towards the end of Uzziah's life, he got arrogant and proud. And he decided that he didn't want to go through the priests to offer sacrifices. Instead, he wanted to go straight in the temple and do it himself. The priests actually tried to stop him from doing it because they knew that it was an offense to God and it was the wrong thing to do. But he went ahead and did it anyway. And immediately as he offered the sacrifices he wasn't allowed to offer, God struck him with leprosy. Now, leprosy was a gross, horrifying skin disease that you didn't want at all, and it caused him to live out the remainder of his life as an outcast and an exile living in isolation. In fact, when he's buried, he couldn't even be buried totally with the rest of the kings because he was unclean. His pride caused him to disregard God's presence and think he could do it on his own, and it led to his downfall. Now, we don't know how close to Uzziah's death this is. We don't know if it's before. We don't know if it's after. We just know that, that Isaiah had this experience with God somewhere within the 12 months around the time Uzziah died, okay? So that's what's going on. It's been a difficult year. Isaiah is watching all of this take place with Uzziah, and so here's where we pick up. Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. With two, they flew. And one called to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorways shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, woe is me, for I'm ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And because my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth, and with it said, Now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed, and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, Who should I send? Who will go for us? Isaiah said, Here I am. Send me. Now, incredible passage. We use it a lot when we talk about missions, but what I want you to see this morning is this is a tremendous passage that points us to what worship is, what worship looks like, both when we get together as a church or when we're there alone studying the Bible by ourselves or when we're sitting at work or we're sitting in the doctor's office or sitting in the dorm room or wherever we find ourselves, worship may look like this. Now, wait a second, Sean. You mean like I'm going to have some crazy vision of, of God and I'm going to see all this? Probably not. Uh, God doesn't often give visions like he did then. I'm, here's where I'm going to put a little asterisk by this. God is God and he can do whatever he wants. Okay, that, That's where I settle out on this. If God wants to give somebody a vision, he can. That's not the normal way that God operates, especially now that we have the Bible in front of us. But Isaiah had the privilege of seeing God in a unique way, and for us, then sets a pattern for worship out of what we see from that, okay? So let's try to, to make sense of that. First off, the first thing we notice is if we're worshiping, as we're engaging with God in worship and exalting him in worship, 
The first aspect of that is reflecting on who God is, okay? Reflecting on who God is. So worship, first of all, is reflecting on who God is. Isaiah, the very first thing that he opens up this vision with is he sees into the temple and sees God seated on a throne high and lifted up. Now, here's what we don't know. We don't know if Isaiah was in the temple at this point and God just kind of let him peek behind the curtain and see what's going on spiritually. We don't know if this was like with Ezekiel when God gives Ezekiel visions of the temple where this was just a vision and God kind of took him there in spirit to kind of show him what was going on. But what we know is that Isaiah in that moment saw God in a very unique way. He saw him high and lifted up, seated on a throne with the hem of his robe filling the temple. It's kind of a great time for us to be thinking about this. How many of you will be honest enough to say, yes, I've been watching all the stuff with the queen's funeral, okay? Anybody willing to own up to it? There's only a handful. All right, come on. Let's, you, the Anglophiles in the room, you can say it, it's okay. But you've seen all of this majestic trappings and all of the king and all the ceremonies and all the jewels and all of the clothes and all of that kind of stuff. What Isaiah saw was even more majestic than that because he saw God seated on his throne, high and lifted up, the train of his robe, filling the temple. temple. Then you have the seraphim crying out around him. You see, as we're thinking about it, as we read the Bible, we're going to see God in unique ways in unique times. Now, I'm, again, not likely that God's going to give you a vision like Isaiah saw. That's just not typically how he operates because you actually have the Bible in front of you where God has revealed himself in his word. God has told us who he is and how he acts, and he's told us what we need to know out of this book right here. That's why we spend so much time talking about it. That's why we spend so much time studying it. That's why as our ladies are watching The Chosen, then they're taking time afterward to discuss what the Bible says about that particular episode and how it was depicted and things like that to make sure we're staying true to what God says in his word. Because this is how God has revealed himself. This is how God has shown himself to us. And man, there are times where as you're sitting and worshiping, you get to see him in a unique way. You you come to understand him in a different way. There's times when we're praying or thinking about God and the Holy Spirit suddenly makes us aware of who God is and what he's doing in a unique way. Maybe we recognize his love or his mercy or his grace through what we read or through what we see. Think about the things that Isaiah saw that were a part of who God was, okay? Look, Look back at his description here, starting in verse one. I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne. What does that mean? Well, the guy with the highest seat in the room is the one who has the most authority. It's a position of honor. It indicates the fact that he rules and reigns over everything. So there as he's looking into the heavenly temple and seeing God's throne, he sees God seated high and lifted up, which reminds us of the majesty of God, the sovereignty of God, the worth of God, the value of God. He sees that the train of his robe is filling the temple, the the hem of his robe. How many of you, did anybody have a cathedral train on their wedding dress? You know, I can't remember how long it's got to be to be considered a cathedral train, but they're like 12 feet long or something crazy. Imagine the train of a king's robe that's so big that it just wraps around and there's almost nowhere to put it because it just fills the temple. The majesty of our God filled the temple as Isaiah saw it. He sees his glory. Not only that, he sees the holiness of God. 
You see the seraphim that are flying around. They're covering their faces because they know that they're not worthy to look at who God is. They're covering their feet as a way to, to show honor to the fact that they don't even want their ugly, nasty feet showing. Right Now, I don't know if angels' feet are ugly, but I know mine sure are. And it said that they covered their feet as a sign of respect, and they're flying around. Here's what else is interesting. Most of us recognize that it says that the, the doorposts of the temple were shaking. But you know what they were shaken by? by how loudly the angels were calling out to each other. I've always thought that it was when the smoke fills the temple, there's just kind of this earthquake. But really, when you look at what the text says, what shakes the temple is how loudly they're declaring, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies, or Lord of hosts, if you've got an older translation. The whole earth is full of his glory. So Isaiah sits and he sees God as the one who is holy, holy, Holy. What does holy mean? Well, holy has a few different ideas to it. One of the main ideas is the moral purity of God. Being holy like God is means that there's absolutely nothing in us that is wrong morally. There's nothing in him. He's never had the wrong motive. He's never done the wrong thing. He's never thought the wrong thought. He's never had the wrong attitude. He's never snapped at you because he's hungry. He's never done any of those things. God is perfectly holy, right? That means there's no moral impurity in him, but God's holiness is also a little bit more than that. God's holiness is because he is separate from everything in creation. The whole idea behind holiness is the idea of being separate. Okay, uh, separated. When we talk about moral holiness, we're talking about the idea that we are separated from sin and separated to God, right? So holiness in that moral aspect is that God is separated from anything wicked, anything sinful, anything that's not right. God's separated from it in his character and his nature. But not only that, God is God. And there is nothing else in all of creation that even holds a candle to who he is. There's nothing, there's no other being, there's no other stars, there's no other galaxies. I don't know about you guys, but have you noticed how clear this, the night sky has been recently? If you're up early enough, you can see Orion is already up pretty high in the southern sky, if you're up early enough to catch it. <laughs> you look at those stars, you look at the, the stuff that's coming back from the James Webb Deep Space Telescope, all these images that you're seeing going around. If you haven't looked that up, by the way, I, you don't have to be a NASA nerd like I am to, to enjoy that. Um, Look up James Webb Deep Space Telescope and look at the images and read the descriptions of how deep they're seeing, how far into the, the universe that God made. We're seeing galaxies and stars that have never before been seen. And God said, yeah, I made all that. None of that holds a candle to who he is and to what he has done. Worship, then, is to reflect on who God is. Uh, Dottie Borisik, one of our church members, shared this quote with me, and I don't know who originated it, uh, but here's the quote. When we cease to wonder, we cease to worship. When we cease to wonder, we cease to worship. You see, wonder is that idea of being awestruck. I remember back when awesome kind of made it its way into the, the common vernacular, like when, you know, back in the early 90s when all of a sudden Taco Bell became awesome, right? I remember hearing older folks kind of bemoaning the fact that by giving up awesome to talk about like the fact that I landed this cool skate trick or whatever it was, we lost the fact that there, in the English language, there is now no word to describe God. 
because he is awesome. Like we forget that that word means inspiring awe. Worship means I cultivate this sense of wonder, this sense where I'm blown away and humbled by who God is. I look at all that he's done. I look at all that he is, and it breaks my heart. Now, part of the way we do that, by the way, is we do that through worshiping in song. We do that as we worship alone, as we open God's word, or as we serve him with the strength that he's given us. When we're doing our own quiet time and we're reading, and and, uh, like I was in Psalm 119 this morning, and as I was reading through that, the psalmist is absolutely captivated with a love for God and for his word. And I was convicted and humbled as I looked at how amazing it is at Psalm 119, where the psalmist over and over again describes the power of God, the goodness of God, the mercy of God, the faithfulness of God, and is just awestruck by it. So much so that it's the longest chapter in the Bible where he just goes on and on and on and on and on about how amazing God is and amazing his word is. You see, I should reflect that way. That should be worship in my own heart. Beyond that, that worship should spill out into the way that we come in here on Sunday morning. See, we call this our Sunday morning worship service. Why do we call it that? Because see, here's what we're doing. I've had a crazy week. How about y'all? Y'all had a crazy week? It seems like they're going around right now. I don't know the last time I could say, you know, this week was actually pretty calm. I really, like, that's, it's been a few months. But here's what happens. At 11 o'clock in the morning, we come in here together, and we stop all of that for just a little bit. Now, I know some of you are still checking your Facebook. All right. But for just a little bit, we stop and say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take the next hour, hour and 15 minutes, and I'm going to get together with a bunch of people, and we're going to stop and reflect on who God is. We're going to remember the things that maybe this week made me forget in the busyness, in the frustration, in the chaos. We're going to take this time just to stop. Now, part of the way we do that is by singing. Music touches the heart in a unique way, and it's also something that God has commanded us to do. Ephesians chapter 5, 18 to 20, don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he says, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Again, this is not lame is. I'm not expecting you Although it would be comical, I'm not expecting you to walk around going, good morning, brother, how are you today? I'm just praising Jesus, right? Like, we're not going to do that, right? But what we do is we take a large portion of our service. Daniel and the team practice all week long. They rehearse, they put together songs so that as we gather together, we're sitting there saying, God, holy, there is no one like you. You alone are worthy of my praise, God, I want to build my life on the foundation of who you are because we're taking time to reflect on who God is together. And here's what we see. We see older adults that are doing that. We see folks who've been walking with Jesus for longer than I've been alive. I used to be able to say for twice as long as I've been alive, but now I'm old enough that I can't really say that much. Although, I don't know, Mr. Mark, when did you get saved? How old were you? 15. All right. Not quite. That would mean I'm almost 40. So, You haven't walked with Jesus quite twice as long as I've been alive, but pretty close. 
And you see folks who have walked with Jesus for a really long time, and they're singing praise and honor and worshiping God. They've walked through unimaginable adversity, and they've proven Jesus faithful. Then you look around and you see a young family just getting started with their adult life, trying to figure out what life is, and you see that what they're doing is they're making sure that the foundation of their life is built on who God is. You find folks who've lost loved ones recently. You find folks who are battling health issues. You find folks who are battling and carrying things that none of us know about. And together we bring all of that into the throne room of God and say, God, you alone are worthy and we're gonna worship and reflect on who you are. That's why this is a worship service. Not just because we go through the motions, but because we wanna take time to sing, to pray, to look at God's word and how he's revealed himself in it and reflect on who he is. Now, there's more to that than just that. As we gather each week to pray and exalt God is, like like I said, we're gonna talk more next week about how do we do that outside of church, right? How do we take worship outside of what happens in this hour or so that we're together? And we're gonna look at what that looks like on the daily for us. But not only do we reflect on who God is as a part of worship, the next part of this is that we reflect on who we are. You see, Isaiah looks and he sees God high and lifted up. He hears all of these majestic, wonderful things. He sees God high and lifted up. Holy, holy, holy. It's loud. The smoke's filling the temple. And what's Isaiah's response? Verse five. Woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and because my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of armies. Isaiah's response is, dude, I'm dead. I am dead. Because I looked and I saw God. And what happens is when we reflect on who God is, we've got to reflect on who we are. And what we find is there's an incredible distance between where God is, where we are. We find that our hearts are sinful. We find that our hearts are turned inward. We find, like Isaiah, that we've been using our words wrong. This is what we call conviction. Conviction is that moment when you see who God is and how morally pure and how righteous he is and the standard he's upheld and realize, I am not there. I've fallen short. I'm not who God made me to be. That's conviction. It's when we recognize who we are in light of who God is. He saw the moral goodness of God, the fact that there was nothing impure in him, and it cut him straight to the heart. It's like we sang just a bit ago, God is holy, there's no one like him. We are weak, we fail, and we're nowhere near all that he calls us to be. So part of worship is acknowledging that if I stood before God in all of my sin, I would be ruined, undone, and destroyed. By the way, side note that comes back around. This is why I'm skeptical of any of the books that talk about somebody dying and going to heaven and walking around, okay? Here's why. Those books typically reflect on what I saw, what I did, what I felt. Look at what happens when people have visions like this in the Bible. Their immediate reaction is, woe is me, for I am undone. Look at the Last Supper. It says that the gospel of, or the, the apostle John laid his head on Jesus's chest. He was that close to Jesus. 
In Revelation, when he sees Jesus in all of his glory, it says that he passed out and fell at his feet like a dead man. That's the way we react when we see God as he is. It's not about how I got treated like this, I got to see this, I got to do that. Side note, sorry if I ruined it, a book for you. But heaven's going to be even better than any of that mess. We get a taste of it now as we reflect on who we are in light of who God is. When's the last time, by the way, that, that you did that, where you actually stopped to think about how sinful you were as you were singing through a song, hearing a message preached? You see, here's what's interesting too. If you notice Isaiah, when he said, woe is me from I am undone, there was just the general sense of God's holy and I'm not. But he also said, I'm a man of unclean lips. He focused on a specific area of sin. You know, I had somebody one time when I was younger, uh, it was an older man in our church who, who said, you know, it's a good thing for you to do when you lay down at bed at night, go back through your day and think through anything you did that was sinful and ask God to forgive you. Now, that's not necessarily the worst idea in history. But I often don't remember what I had for breakfast by the time I lay my head down, right? I, I genuinely, I don't know what shirt I wore yesterday. I, no, I did. Okay, I remember. Like, ser- and I'm not, I'm, like, that's not preacher talk. I'm serious. I had to think about, I know what shirt I wore to bed last night. Yeah, okay. I know what I wore yesterday, but I have to think about it. So do you think by the time I get to the end of the day, I'm going to have any idea what I did? Not a chance. So cultivating a lifestyle of worship means that I'm going to keep a short sin list with God. I, I'm not just going to wait till I get to bed and say, God, forgive me for my sins. But as I'm cultivating an understanding of who God is and and seeing who I am, then that means throughout the day, I'm going to go, I should not have said that. Hmm, I was wrong when I thought that. Man, I should not have reacted that way. I should have been more generous with that person. I should have been gentler. I should have been more kind. I shouldn't have been so afraid of what they thought, and I should have been more bold. As I go through the day, then, keeping in mind who God is, I start to see more and more who I am in light of it. And I keep a short sin account with God. I deal with that. Like Isaiah, I say, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. So when's the last time you got specific with God about your sin? Again, it may be that you had a father or a grandfather or somebody at church that, that raised you up to pray something like that at bedtime where you say, God, forgive me of my sin. You didn't commit them in general. You commit them specifically. So there should be some time where you specifically feel convicted about specific sins and confess specific sins. That's part of worship. But now as we reflect on who God is and we reflect on who we are in light of it, that leads us to the third thing that we see here. And that is to respond in obedience. There's a beautiful moment here. Isaiah says, woe is me for I am undone. And as he does so, what he's expressing is what we call repentance, okay? Now, often we talk about repentance as if I'm going this way and God shows me it's wrong, I turn and I go back this way, right? It's a U-turn. And yes, it's accompanied by action, but it begins with the heart attitude that says, woe is me. The heart attitude that says, God, you're holy and I am not. God, I have fallen so short of who you've created me to be and who you are, and I need you to forgive me. That's what repentance is. It's that heart attitude of brokenness that then's going to play itself out in obedience and action. You see Isaiah, when he cries out and says, woe is me, for I am undone, 
Here's how it happens. Then verse six, one of the seraphim flew to me and his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched it with my mouth with it and said, now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for. Isaiah found forgiveness because when he saw God as he was and saw himself as he was, then he began to repent and found forgiveness. He turned, he allowed it to break his heart and God forgave him and use that as a symbol of his forgiveness. Now, by the way, we know that forgiveness ultimately was not because of a hot coal. We don't have hot coals up here for us to you know, go through and, hey, guys, at the end of service today, remember, make sure you get your lips touched. We're not, we, that's not what God's doing here. No, actually, forgiveness was a much more costly sacrifice. Forgiveness came because Jesus, the one that Isaiah actually saw seated and high and lifted up on the throne, would one day take on human form. And he would walk around us. He actually would take on humanity, not just look like a person, but actually take on a physical body. And he would live among us. And eventually he would die on a cross for me. That's the sacrifice that this this cleansing pictured with taking that, that hot coal and putting it on Isaiah's lips. That pointed to the fact that he would need something to purify him from sin. And what purifies us from sin is the fact that Jesus died on the cross to take my punishment on himself. That he was buried and three days later, he rose from the dead, proving that he had defeated death and taken that punishment. So first off, responding in obedience is responding in repentance of seeing the gap between God's holiness and my own life and saying, God, I need you to forgive me for this because I've fallen so short of where you are. There's a general sense in which we do this when we first make that decision to follow Jesus, when he first draws us to himself and we respond to him and we, we trust him as Savior and Lord. But then there's a daily sense in which we continue to grow in that understanding. Yes, we're saved, but we're trying to, to walk closer with him. And so we ask him to forgive us and to restore us and to give us strength not to do it anymore. So worship involves reflecting on who God is, reflecting on who we are, responding in repentance, and then also in obedience. Because see, now Isaiah was ready. The sin had been taken care of. It was out of the way. And so God says, Who will go for us? Who will I send? Now, notice, how many many words is that in English? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Nine words, right? Where's he going? What's he want me to do? How hard is it gonna be? Who's gonna go with me? God doesn't give any of those details. What's Isaiah's response? Here I am, send me. Have you ever been in an elementary school class? Okay, if you've ever been in an elementary school class, it doesn't work when you get to high school. Uh, high school, you can't get anybody to volunteer to do anything. But if an elementary school teacher goes, I need a volunteer, who wants to volunteer to help? Every class, every hand in the class shoots up. They don't know what it's for. Maybe it's take something to the office. Maybe it's help me pass out papers. But like every hand goes up because they're like, hey, whatever it is, I'm in. I want to do it. 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 That's what Isaiah seems to do. God says, hey, who am I going to send? Who will go for us? Isaiah says, me, me, here I am, send me. To do what? I don't know. We've described this before as putting your yes on the table and letting God put it on the map. Say, God, here's the thing. I I see you as holy and sovereign over all of creation. I see you as morally pure and right, and I see that I'm not that way. So God, I'm returning to you in repentance, and now whatever you say, the answer is yes. 
Whatever you ask, I'm doing it. Whatever you call me to go, wherever, however, sure, I'm there. That's what worship is. Worship is reflecting on who God is. And using that to drive us to reflect on who we are and how short we fall. And then allowing him to make up the difference through repentance and responding in obedience. Now, you see how that plays out on a Sunday morning, right? We pray because we want to seek his face. We sing songs that exalt him. Through that, I hope that you're examining your own heart. We look at God's word together. Remember, anytime I preach something to you, I've had to preach it to myself all week as I've been writing it. We look at God's word together. We see better who he is. We see better what he's calling us to do. And so then our response is we need to do something with it. Now, I'm not saying that every week when you come to church, you're gonna walk out with some palatable, like I know this week this has to be different, but it should happen from time to time. There should be times when God's directing you, God's leading you. We've all done it. But I'm afraid that what happens is we're so used to worship services like this that what happens is we walk in, we feel something, and we leave. And I would suggest that worship is incomplete until we respond in obedience, until it changes what we do. And then I don't know how deeply we've actually worshiped. You see, worship means I'm going to reflect on who God is, reflect on who I am. And that that's going to lead me to respond in obedience. I want us to have an opportunity to do that together this morning. We've already been doing it some, but I want to make it a little bit more visible. In just a minute, we're going to take what we call communion or the Lord's Supper. Um, If you did not grab these on the way in and would like to participate, Randy Marshall's got some and Mike Montgomery has some others. Um, This is what we're using right now for our communion elements. If you did not get some and you'd like to participate with us, please raise your hand. By the way, you do not have to be a member of Christiansburg Baptist Church to be able to partake with us. Some churches do it that way, but we don't. Um, We do ask, though, that, that you don't take the Lord's Supper unless you know that you have a right relationship with God. In other words, that you've been saved through Jesus and what he's done for you. And you also know that you're not living in sin. If there's something in your life that you know is not squared away and you're not doing correctly, then the Bible says it's improper for you to take the Lord's Supper with us because it's something that is reflective of where we are in our walk with Christ, okay? But again, you don't have to be a member here. Um, This is something that God gave us. This is a ceremony and a, a, a picture that Jesus gave to his disciples the night before he was crucified. And what you'll see is in just a minute, we'll, we'll take the little top part off and there's a little piece of bread that that bread reminds us of Jesus's body that was broken for us. Then when we get down below that, you can peel like the full purple part back. You'll see that that's the cup. And the juice in this cup reminds us of Jesus's blood that was shed for us. So what we're doing is we're reflecting on who God is and what he's done. We're reflecting on who we are because we know that it was our sin that put Jesus on the cross. It also means that Jesus loved us so much and thought we were so valuable that he would be willing to shed his own blood on our behalf. So as we're going through this, what I want to do is I want us to read another passage out of the the book of Isaiah. I almost said the gospel of Isaiah, and actually that's not far off. But out of the book of Isaiah that reminds us about the sacrifice that Jesus would make. It's in Isaiah chapter 53. As I read through these verses, it's poetic description of the sacrifice that Jesus would one day make. You're welcome to turn over there and read along with me, Isaiah 53. 
But as we do, what I want you to do is reflect on what that passage tells us about who God is. I may make some observations as we go through it. Then I want you to look at it and think about who we are in light of it. And then I want to give you a moment to respond to what God's saying. And if there's any repentance that needs to take place, if there's any obedience that you need to commit to this morning, I want you to have time to do that before we take the supper together. Okay? Isaiah chapter 53, beginning in verse 1. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him. By the way, that he is Jesus. Grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him. No appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet Jesus himself bore our sicknesses. He carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment and who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with the rich man at his death because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him the guilt offering, he will see his seed. He'll prolong his days, and by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as spoil because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. I'm going to ask Daniel if you'd go ahead and come on up. I want to give you a moment to reflect. Maybe you want to sit there and have your Bible open to Isaiah 53 and just take some moments there to reflect on who God is, the God who would be rejected for you, the God who would bear your iniquity, the God who would die in your place. And then take some time to reflect on who you are. You're one that wandered away like sheep. You're one that went your own way. And then again, do business with God and respond in obedience. So just go ahead and bow your head, close your eyes there for just a minute. Invite Daniel to play. Father, we want to worship you today as the great and awesome God who is holy and seated upon the throne over all of creation. And yet also the God who loved us so much that he would take on flesh, human form, human life, that he would live and walk among us, that he would die on the cross and be buried and 
rose from the grave to take my sin, my iniquity, my punishment that I deserve for everything I've ever done wrong. God, you are so good and so gracious and so holy. So as we reflect on your body and your blood, as we take this ceremony together, we ask that you would help it to be an act of worship where we respond in obedience. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.